In the name of Jesus, amen. Our text is from Psalm 139, a few verses from that psalm. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. How precious are to me your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Though it is not yet the official beginning of our 20th annual theological symposium, I know that your presence here at this early hour in part is indicative of your interest and excitement for what is soon to come. Our topic over these next few days is, as the title indicates, science and theology. New questions, new conversations. New questions and new conversations. This sounds promising hopeful. It's not that we are all done with the old questions and old conversations between science and theology. It's just that they have had a rather contentious history, though such history has been relatively brief. So this year marks the 400th anniversary since Galileo invented the refracting telescope. And the questions and conversations that followed did not begin well and ended even worse with charges of heresy, recantations, recantations of recantations, and imprisonment. This also marks 200 years since the birth of Charles Darwin and 150 since the publication of On the Origin of Species, which raised questions that have precipitated not so much conversation, but shrill dispute. The relationship of science and theology has not always been one of conflict, and there has been some promising attempts at reconciliation and cooperation. And so John Paul II famously articulated the possibility of complement, saying, science can purify religion from error and superstition, but religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Each can draw the other into a wider world, a world in which both can flourish. We need each other to be what we must be, what we are called to be. Still, more often than not, the conversation between science and theology has devolved into discord. A part of the conflict arises from the shifting definitions of science and what actually is knowable. At least since the 12th century, the question of science and what it entails has been debated. And then with the rise of universities, theology itself was deemed the queen of sciences. But even then, there was not agreement on what even this meant. Perhaps the most important debate was, and continues to be, the limits 
of knowledge. What, in fact, is it possible for us to know? And what is it permissible for us to know? When St. Augustine detailed the various ways in which our sinful desires affect us, the so-called threefold concupiscence, he noted that the particular temptation of the intellect was curiositas, curiosity, which pretends that the quest for knowledge can be utterly free and unfettered, as if knowledge is always morally neutral. And yet no one would ever argue that it is ethically inconsequential to discover how, for example, a baby might react to torture. So it is clear that there are things that we ought not to seek in order to understand or to know. And this is true not only of the natural universe, but also of our quest to understand God. Even as that ancient curiosity has left this world reeling in that knowledge of good and evil. And the danger of theological curiosity is not simply of asking unusual and creative questions like, what was God doing before he created the world? Which Augustine replied, preparing hell for people who ask such impudent questions. <laughs> no, rather, theological curiosity has the danger in that it brings about a knowledge that in tragic irony finds itself moving away from knowing God and into deeper darkness so that the evangelist laments that the light has shined in the darkness, but the darkness, it has not understood it. With such ambiguity over the limits of knowledge, the definition, the complexity of the debates between theological knowledge and scientific knowledge, its overlap, its rivalry, its abuse, how do we proceed? How do we begin with these new questions and these new conversations? Our psalm this morning weighs in on the debate but with an entirely different understanding of knowledge. Here it is not our knowledge of the world or of God, but it is God's knowledge of us. What is important is not that we know, but that we are known. Throughout this psalm, we are the object of God's knowing, his inescapable omni-science. This theological knowledge, this science of God, as we read this psalm, at first seems potentially frightening. You know when I sit. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search my path, my lying down, and you know all of my ways. Even before I speak a word, you know it already. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Hemmed in, behind, and before with God's hand pressing down on me? This sounds like a suffocating, oppressive knowledge. It sounds a lot like the big brother God described and detested by Christopher Hitchens, a voyeuristic God who watches our every move. 
Or perhaps it is like Nietzsche's ugliest man who murders God because he could no longer bear God's eternal gaze, which always sees his ugliness through and through. And the psalmist tries to escape, but all in vain. If I take the wings of the morning, that is, if I grab hold of the morning sun in the east, and I fly across the circuit all the way into the western seas to make my escape, I find that it is in fact God who is guiding the sun and leading it across the skies. And if I remain in the west and let the evening sun turn into night and hide me in its impenetrable darkness, it's still no good. For the darkness is not dark to you, O Lord. The night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. Yet paradoxically, it is precisely in this terrifying knowledge that the psalmist finds occasion for praise. Because there he finds, in the midst of God's knowledge, the presence of God, the presence of his grace. Because we cannot escape from God, God will always be with us. There is a certain ambiguity here. The psalmist, however, ultimately finds God's knowledge a comfort, for it comes with an abiding presence, his company, his society. Even in the depths of the earth, God is present. Even in the darkness, God's light shines. Even in the grave, that dreaded bed of Sheol, that place where throughout the Psalms, God's grace, his chesed, is entirely absent. Here, even here, the psalmist declares that God finds him. His knowledge extends to all boundaries, from our origin and beginning, knit together in our mother's womb through each of our days, even those which have not yet come to pass, even in our death, where in the land of forgetfulness God is with us and he knows us, and thus we are not forgotten. This is true theological knowledge, not that we know, but that we are known. And this is not some distant, all-seeing eye, but knowing, in the biblical sense, the intimate, vulnerable, becoming of one flesh knowledge that God takes on in the great mystery and manifestation of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Knit together in his mother's womb and born of the Virgin Mary, he is God with us. As Luther says, with us in the muck and in the work that makes his skin steam. Yes, it's an invasive presence, the most invasive, an intrusion into our historical existence, a rupture into the workings of our world and what we have come to know and rely on. His coming and his presence imparts knowledge, but a knowledge that reveals us our true nature, so that we read that the scholars and the priests, the pious and the powerful, all rush together to nail him to the cross. And there, seeing him stretched out in our flesh 
in our crime. We come to see our own deep, dark ignorance as he prays for our forgiveness, for we know not what we do. And God's drawing near to us in the flesh and cross of Christ, we truly come to know ourselves. Sinners all, rebels and murderers of God, robbers of his creation, worshipers of self and our achievements. Yet paradoxically, it is precisely in this terrifying knowledge of the cross that we find the occasion to praise because here we find God's presence of grace. He knows our weakness, and he bears our sins. He enters into our death, and now I fear no evil because thou art with me. He descends into the very depths of the grave so that even there, filled with his gracious presence, we are with the Lord and with his resurrection comes our own, so that, as the psalmist says, when I awake, I am still with him. So where does that leave science? Where does that leave theology? Well, it places it within the world that has been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus, so that we examine and prod and discover but with hope, knowing that we do not stand alone on a dirty blue ball spinning on the outer spiral of one of 100 billion galaxies, but that we live and work and learn on what J.B. Phillips once called the visited planet. With such knowledge and hope, we enter into our new questions and with humility, our new conversations and with gratitude and with the psalmist's concluding prayer on our lips. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. Amen. The peace of God that passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.